I used to take feedback extremely seriously, every single piece of feedback. And so when I was getting this contrasting feedback, I was very confused and then realized, okay, this role's probably not a fit for me. I don't think I can succeed in this role. Hey, welcome to the Delivering Value podcast. My name is Andrew Kaplan, and in this show, I chat with people who work in growth about the hardest parts of their job. These are tough jobs that come with a lot of challenge and adversity and self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And I want to explore how some folks are able to navigate through those things while others get stuck. My guest today is Rosie Hogmaskell. Rosie was the product growth lead at Peanut and a growth manager at What Three Words before she left her full-time gigs to become a growth consultant and fractional head of growth, helping other companies find product market fit and validate their growth loops. In addition to those things, Rosie also works for Women in Tech, which is a nonprofit in the UK aimed on getting more women into the tech space. And she shares a lot of her insights and learnings as a writer for the UX Collective on Medium. I was really excited to have Rosie come on the pod because she has learned the importance of soft skills through some of the challenging moments in her career. One is that she talked about how difficult it was to speak up when someone else took credit for her work when she was early on in a new growth job. And she talked at length about how what a hit to our identity it was to start this new role and then instantly be unhappy in it. And she talked about the strategies that she used to have difficult conversations. We also talked about the importance of managing up in roles like this. Rosie talked about a localization project where she didn't do a great job of communicating that she was behind schedule and behind goal with her manager and then had some really difficult conversations afterwards. She shared a lot about the challenges that she has faced, but she also shared a lot of frameworks that will be helpful to anyone in similar situations. We've covered a ton of ground. I know you're going to love this conversation. Let's jump right in. This episode is brought to you by Novatic. If you follow me online, you know how much I believe in the interactive demo space. And that's because if you work at a product-led company that has a free trial or a freemium motion, what you see is usually a high percentage of those new users sign up, poke around for a few minutes, but never really use your product in a meaningful way. It's really frustrating. And when you survey these folks, usually they'll say, well, I just wanted to see your product in action. I'm not really ready to upload my stuff yet. And I saw this happen firsthand when I was at PostScript and at Wistia. And to solve this problem, we created an interactive version of our tool, an interactive demo. We put it on the website and we saw how effective it was to activate more signups and convert more free users into paying customers. If you're looking for help doing this yourself, check out Novatic. They have a no-code editor to help product-led SaaS companies create and build interactive demos that increase conversions and activations. I recommend them all the time to my advising clients, especially right now as resources are tight and every new account matters. If you're interested in learning more, check out novatic.com value. This episode of the show is brought to you by Mad Kudu. As a former head of growth, my team spent insane amounts of time trying to identify the accounts that are likely to purchase or upgrade based on their behavioral signals. And our business intelligence team spent weeks and weeks analyzing our touch points and trying to predict if an account was likely to convert or not. It was a long and complicated process in the mix of sales-led and product-led motions and touch points made it way harder. Madkudu's revenue automation intelligence helps SaaS companies cut through the noise and brings more focus to revenue and growth teams by predicting and prioritizing the right revenue generating actions. They help SaaS companies with hybrid go-to-market models like the ones I've worked at understand what the data is telling us and what to do with it. If you're interested in learning more, check out madkudu.com value. 
For those who aren't familiar with you and your background, what initially led you into growth? Because growth is still a relatively new thing. How did you get here? It's a very good question. I actually fell into it. I was in my first role at the time. I was in a communications consultancy in London. I'd been there for about two years and I saw a job ad, growth manager at What Three Words. And I knew that what I was doing in my job at the time didn't feel right. I didn't feel like there was enough data in it. We were doing lots of PR campaigns and communication campaigns, but how are they doing? How do we know where's the numbers? And so I saw this job ad, a geography at university. So What Three Words was really interesting to me. It's a navigation app. And I applied, I did the case study interview, got the job, and then I got into growth. So I literally just fell into it. And if you had stopped to like press pause then and be like, hey, Rosie, what's growth? I wouldn't have been able to give you an answer. And I think if you'd asked me at the end of that job too, I also wouldn't have been able to give you an answer. So what's interesting to me is you said, hey, I'm working in PR. I was craving to understand the impact of some of my work. And I'm wondering, where does that come from? Are you one of those people that in your life have had other areas of your life where you craved more data and more accountability and you wanted to understand impact or did that come from somewhere else? I think... I was always a generalist. So in the UK, when you're doing your year nine GCSEs, you generally do about 10 GCSEs. And I found it really hard to pick 10. Like struggled to choose between PE and art and design technology, which like DIY and all three sciences. So I just didn't want to drop anything. I've always been a generalist and I've always liked the analytical side, but I've also always loved art and creativity. My family are really creative. I found maths really challenging at school and physics. So I really wanted to prove the teachers wrong. And so I did it really hard and then it went really well. So I think there's a bit of competition in there. I love being a generalist at school. I struggled to pick subjects. High school, I struggled to drop them. And same into uni. That's why I did a really broad subject at uni. That's fascinating. And I'm laughing because you're saying, I wanted to prove the professors or the instructors wrong. And that just really resonates with me personally. When I was a kid growing up, I always used to argue with my parents and they'd say, you need to do it this way. Or like, you have to have dessert after dinner or whatever. And I'd say, why? How do you know? Or where does that come from? Or why is that important? And then they always used to say, oh, when he grows up, he's probably going to be a lawyer or something like that because he's just so annoying and he questions everything. So that's why I was laughing when you said I wanted to prove my professors wrong because that really resonates with me. And I'm sure other folks out there who work in growth were kind of snarky, inquisitive people. I was in an international school at the time. The culture there was very high performance. I was seen as this ditzy white girl. So I was like, I need to prove my teachers wrong. I also need to prove everyone else wrong. That really drove me. I think it comes from early age, being cross-functional, liking to prove people wrong, knowing what I want, also not knowing what I want. Yeah, super cool. So you shared, I joined What Three Words back in 2019. I'm curious if there were certain people or moments or educational investments that you made that impacted your career. Because you said when I first got into this, I didn't really know what it was. I was just trying to have more impact and more accountability and to connect what I was doing to business results. What assisted you on this journey or who assisted you on this journey? Lots of people, but realistically as well, just experience. So my first growth role was like data, SQL, analytics. The second growth role was more like spread across the whole funnel. The third growth role was product. Over those three different experiences, I now know a bit more about the different ways you can do growth. To answer your question around, is there a moment or a person? I've got one moment and one person. So when I left What Three Words, I joined a pre-seed 
app called Furly and it's a sex therapy app for women. And I was the growth lead. So I was running the performance marketing channels and doing all the product experiments and doing all the product analytics. Actually, even before my first day, we did a startup core strengths course with Matt Lerner. And it's a 12-week course that your whole business goes through. And it's not like, here's the tactics you need to implement. It's here is how you set up a growth process. Here is all the templates that you need. So I learned the cadence of experimentation, how to get through what an MVP is, how to get message market fit, all like really core fundamental things. And I still dip into it years later. I was really junior at the time as well. And I had this high level strategic view of how do you build a growth function at an early stage app? So that was one earlier in a career. The second one is a person and it's called Joseph. So I was in a role, I wasn't having a great time. And what I used to do when I wasn't having a great time in a role is I'd send out a load of job applications. So I was really surprised when I received an email for an interview for a head of growth role, a big DTC company. The person who sent me this email, Joseph, positioned it as a coaching call. So we have this call, five minutes into the call, I did my spiel, my pitch for myself. And Joseph is like, this role isn't right for you. And it was very early in the call and he scheduled an hour. And not entirely surprised, but thanks for telling me. And then he said, but what you do need is you need two years under a great head of growth. Once you have that under your belt, you'll then be ready to step up into this sort of head of growth role for this sort of size business. And when you do that, these are all the resources and the people you'll need around you to support you and set you up to success. And I was completely mind blown. I was falling into role after role and I'd never been given direction or kind of a roadmap. And it was very influential. I then tried and went and did that. And Joseph also built a group called Growth and Company Slack Group. In that, you have heads of growth asking questions. Like last week, someone was like, how do I measure PR? Someone was like, how do you validate acquisition channels? You got people sharing things. And I describe it as growth therapy. So it started as Joseph giving me direction. And now I'm in his group where I'm like, please, someone help me. I'm sure some other growth person is having this issue. This is Joseph Fitzgibbon we're talking about, yes? So I had him on the pod a couple of interviews ago. And so it's funny timing for you to bring him up because I chatted with him about a lot of different things. And he shared that he did some coaching and mentorship, but he didn't know it came out so organically like this, where you just came across him applying for jobs and the job ended up being one of the jobs that he was looking to staff. And it sounds like really he acted as a mentor for you. And he really kind of spelled out the experience that you needed and what it would unlock for you and where to focus and how to go about doing that. What a gift that is. Most people don't get that. It's funny because I think normally as a growth person, especially early stage, you can be the only growth person. You're often working with the founder and the founder is not going to say to you, you can then in your career move to this sort of company. And a lot of times they don't even know. It's like they're just trying to grow the business. They're hiring a growth role. They heard from a founder friend that they should hire a growth role. But they don't really know a lot of times what it is and what you need to be successful in their career path. It's probably new to them too. I think senior growth people are few and far between and are busy. Don't always have time for coaching. And while product coaches might be more common, I think growth coaches are not as common. So that was important to me in my career trajectory. I didn't stop applying for jobs. I think it's good practice. You never know. But I think that was really helpful in being an impactful, pivotal moment in my growth career trajectory. One more question before we move off of this. Why do you think applying to jobs is something important that everybody should do? Someone mentioned this to me. He said it's useful for a load of different reasons. One is what is out there and what the market rate is so that when you have salary negotiations, it's really handy for you to know what the market rate is. That's generally quite a good data point. The other one is two sides of the coin. One, you realize how great your job is 
because you're talking to these people and you're not getting the same vibe, you're not seeing things that are interesting to you and it validates the fact that you're in the right place. The other hand is you might see that there are other areas that you maybe can't move into in your current job, like people management, but there's opportunities for those elsewhere. So I think there's a few things it can do. I do find them quite time consuming. So I think setting boundaries for not just accepting everything. If you're not convinced by the product by the first couple of calls, you should probably end it there. And I've had that. So you get the gift of perspective. And sometimes that's good perspective. And sometimes that's perspective that the grass may not be greener and that the situation that you're in might be better than you realized. So you continue on applying to roles, still working in growth. These are typically not easy jobs. And so I'm curious to know if you could share one of the challenges that you encountered towards the beginning of your journey. I have a challenge at the very beginning of my growth journey, literally on week two. So to set the scene, I was growth manager at What Three Words. But essentially what I was actually doing in that role was doing all the product analytics for the product team. So the growth team on What Three Words was more like a consultancy team. So we would do all the OKRs, the objectives and key results. We would analyze the goings on in the business and then suggest improvements. So we were definitely more of a data heavy team. When I joined, I had massive imposter syndrome. People were using all this startup terminology that I had no idea what it was. I also don't think they knew what it was. Lots of terminology made me feel very insecure and like I was in the deep end. I didn't have a load of things to do when I got there. There was the whole onboarding thing. So I feel like it was a new team. I need to show my worth. I need to find stuff to do. So I was briefed an app store optimization task by my line manager at the time, who was the growth lead. I did that task, sent what my findings were, and then they changed some really minor things like the color of something and moved the box around and then shared it as their own and edit it without letting me know. And that was my work. That feels really wrong. So I talked to them. I mentioned that it felt wrong. They made some excuse and said something to the effect of, you'd better change if you want to stay here. You better change your attitude. So it was two weeks in. I felt like I'd left my family. I was insecure in this role. I felt like very psychologically unsafe. I felt like an idiot. I'd done this spiel at my old role, like I need this new job. I'm really excited. And then it wasn't what I expected. And I think the whole world crushed. <laughs> I just want to go a little bit deeper on this. So you started this new role. You're being asked to do a task, you do the task, and then it gets presented and really taken credit by somebody else, by your manager. That's what happened? Yeah, I wasn't mentioned in any of it. So I thought they would mention me or at least be like, hey, Rosie, I've edited these for these things. You're happy for me to share. It was quite a simple, small thing, really. So after that happened, I was not feeling great in the role. I did mention to the head of growth at the time, who was their manager, my ultimate manager. I mentioned, hey, I've had this thing. This person treats me, doesn't feel very respectful. I think it was a month or two later, I happened to be talking to a, another growth manager. Then she described a similar situation where she felt really bad after an interaction with this person. So ultimately what happened is a few people said, hey, this is not right. And then that person was let go because they didn't match the culture of the business. So I'm glad I talked to a colleague. I would have never known that I wasn't alone. And then I'm also glad that I actually raised it. It did take me a few weeks though, because I was literally two weeks into the role. What a tricky spot to be in where you don't want to say anything bad about your new manager, but at the same time, you're not okay with what happened. You're not sure how to navigate it because you're in this new company and culturally, you don't really know what's normal and what's accepted. You waited a little bit and then you did eventually bring it up though. How did you bring that up? How does somebody start that conversation? I'm sure that there are going to be folks listening to this that are either in a situation like this 
or have encountered it in the past. And there's no playbook for this. So I'm curious to know how you approached it. I was lucky at that role, actually, to have someone that I could go to who was the head of growth, who was very lovely, very good at listening. I was quite an emotional person. So I wrote down and tried to make it be fact. So I had a little piece of paper. I said, this date, this happened. This is roughly what was said. This is how I felt. This is what I take away from this. This is what I'm struggling with. This is where you could help me. So I did write little post-its. And I went into that conversation and I was a bit nervous. It was probably an hour long conversation. I was like shaking a little bit, but it was face to face in a cafe. And I said, I've had this issue, this ongoing behavior of not respecting me and my ideas. And I feel like I'm treated slightly differently to maybe the men on the team. I got through that conversation, thankfully, because this person was good at listening. I've had the same thing at a different company with 10 people. And it was with one of the co-founders who was really rubbing with a lot of the team for a long period of time not resulting in good growth outcomes. It was inefficient. That's the key thing. And I went to the other co-founder and again, have my little piece of paper. This is things that happen. This is how I feel. And they helped me structure a response. And then I had a two hour conversation. It happened about three times in the space of a year and a half. And then after that, we had actions. We worked through it. it was good for about three months and then another thing. So piece of paper, best tool ever for difficult conversations. But I like to be prepared. I love that. And as a coach, I talk to folks all the time who are encountering some kind of adversity or they need to have some type of difficult conversation and they're not sure how to do it. You did the things that I often find the folks who are successful, what they do. So they gather their thoughts beforehand. They write things down so that they're prepared and that they're not winging it. And then they usually lead with vulnerability. A lot of times I'll actually reference Brene Brown. She has like a really good line in one of her books that says, when you want to be vulnerable with someone and bring up a difficult conversation, you can lead with, the story that I'm telling myself in my head, and then you can lead with what's going on. And that way it kind of leads with vulnerability, but it allows you to say the tough things because you might be wrong. It's just what you're thinking in your head. And it allows you to start the conversation and get it going. What I heard you say is you take maybe a different line, but that you followed very similar steps. And that seems like that was helpful, although maybe not easy. Not easy. And I think in the first situation, it was, I'm not talking to the person who I'm actually talking about. Whereas in the second example, I'm talking face-to-face -face with the person who I had this issue with, and that's harder, much harder. And what the other co-founder recommended as well as advice is talk about you and how you feel. It's all about not blaming. It's much better when it comes, like you said, what's going on in my mind? This is how I'm feeling. This is what resulted in me and my emotions. So that was a good piece of advice too. Yeah, helpful. The other thing that you said that stood out to me was... Your words, not mine, but you said, I took this new role. I told all my friends how excited I was. I told my family about it. And then I get there and I'm not happy and I feel like an idiot. Can you elaborate a little bit more about that? Because I've been in that situation and that's a brutal place to be because now you're trapped where you've taken this big risk. Work is a huge part of your identity. And now all of a sudden it's not going well. It's not going well immediately. And it's easy to get in your head about that. How did you navigate that? I definitely felt stuck. And this was by chance. One of my old bosses had messaged me like, hey, I actually have seen a role for you. I know you've just started. And I did say, I'm not having a great time. So I did open up to someone and that really broke down my internal monologue of you're an idiot, you're stuck. Because then I realized I wasn't an idiot, it wasn't my fault. And I wasn't stuck because there's always options. I was lucky that they reached out to me because I definitely wouldn't have reached out to them. But I actually went, for an interview in my third week at What Three Words, a big global 50, 100 company for actually kind of a growth role. I wasn't successful. 
but I was really grateful to my old boss bringing me physically to this interview and it gave me a bit of there's always options you've left but people are still looking out for you and I know loads of people who were in a growth role and want to become founders and the role they've left they're happy to have them back I actually heard from my role that I left we're always happy to have you back if it doesn't work out so I think open up to some people you can break down those narratives that you're an idiot because you're never really stuck and your tip for always be interviewing really came in handy here, where now it's not a whole big thing. You're always exploring around, and that gives you perspective, like we talked about, and it also gives you optionality so that you never feel trapped. Yeah. One other thing about feeling trapped is we talk about startup runway, but it's really useful to have your own runway. So you need to be in a position where you can leave somewhere. Maybe you're made redundant. Maybe you're fired. Maybe you just need to leave. And it is good to have your own personal runway. So I've actually done that this year. I calculated, I budgeted, I started saving, have a little kind of pot. Some people think maybe that's basic personal finances. But have your own personal runway to give you literal proof that you're never stuck and you can leave whenever you want. I think that's really important. I had a mentor, Sunit Bhatt, who is probably not listening to this, but has had a big impact on my life. At one point I was sharing that I was feeling similar to what you're talking about. I was feeling trapped in a role. I wasn't sure what to do next. And I was staying there. And he said, if the company's unhappy with you, Andrew, it's very clear. They're going to put you on a plan. And if you don't change, whatever it is, the thing that they put you on a plan about, they'll let you go. He said, why don't you do that to the company? Why don't you put them on your plan? And if they don't change to the things that are critical for you and your happiness, then you can leave and you can fire your company. When he shared that, I was like, dude, you're crazy. I'm not firing my company. I'm not quitting my job. In retrospect, incredible advice. And that's what I'm hearing you say. Get your finances in place so that financially you can walk away from that. But don't be scared to put your company on a plan. It's very true. I like that. And people always tell you that about actually applying. But you need to be doing your due diligence. When you're at the company, put them on a performance plan if they're not the right culture for you, not the right value fit, but also in interviews as well. One of the things that we were talking about a little bit ago was communicating and having tough conversations. In our previous context, we were just chatting about sharing when folks aren't living up to your expectations, when folks are making you feel poorly, when folks culturally aren't aligned with you and what you find acceptable in your values. But a lot of times as a coach, I'll also chat with folks who are struggling to communicate bad news, usually upwards. We're missing a deadline. We're behind plan. We're going to miss our OKRs. And they don't do it because it's painful in the moment, but really it just kicks the can and it's more painful down the road. Has that ever happened to you? That has definitely happened to me in a big way. So I was at Peanut at the time. We were doing a big localization project. Peanut's a social network for mums to find friends near you. We're going into a new market. So there was an external deadline for this product change. And my role at the time was product growth lead. So we had this localization project, translating the whole app into another language in eight weeks. We've got some PR conversations that we've been working months to get in the diary. The deadline passed. And I was the product person responsible for this project. And some of the key parts of the app were still in English. And literally in some of these meetings, they fell flat directly because of that. I was responsible. So this was a project that I let hit the fan. At the time, my boss was on holiday when all this transpired. And when they came back, we had a one-to-one. -one and they said, I'm really disappointed in you. This was your project. You were responsible. And this is what's happened. I also wasn't prepared for that meeting. I didn't have my little notes. I would have been winging it. Very uncomfortable for me. So rescheduled, had the meeting again. Was still really, really challenging. But at least I had that preparation. 
I did not manage up. I did not tell people that it was going to hit the fan. And senior leaders were surprised on the back foot in public. So that was the key thing. And that was the mistake that I made, just not managing up well or at all. And so what's your self-dialogue? You're in this meeting. She's saying, hey, it's not acceptable. This fell flat on your watch. What's going on in your head when all this is happening? Do you know fight, flight, or freeze responses? Fight is like you come back fighting in the situation. Flight is obviously you run away and freeze is just like you freeze. That's me. I need to prepare for a conversation. Sometimes if you spring things on me, I've now learned little sentences that can help me take the time that I need. But in the moment, I just froze. I didn't have any prepared words to say. I didn't really respond in a way that I felt proud or that I was prepared for. I just froze and then panicked. Myself dialogue in the moment, there wasn't much dialogue. But afterwards, I was like, I can't do my job. I'm a complete failure. I'm not allowed to fail. I didn't feel like I had the answers. I felt very trapped. Looking back, I think there was some things in my control and not. But in the moment, no words. Later, I felt awful. I felt like I couldn't do my job at all. So what happens after that? So you have the meeting, you freeze in the meeting, you get out of the meeting, you're reflecting on it, you feel crummy. Did you quit the next week and become a barista for like a couple of years? I'm awful at latte art, so no, I didn't do that. Luckily, I talked to a lot of people. At the time, I had a professional coach, which was a perk of the job. It was called Summer, and you can get a coach. I also had a product coach. It was my first hardcore product role, and I needed someone to be able to lean on for like what's right and what's wrong in product. They're outside the business. I used to work, they're called Ben Davies. They work at Klarna and UX. And I would have a three-weekly conversation with Ben and say, hey, we've come across this. This is my issue. So this happened instantly on WhatsApp. Ben, please, can we have a call? This was what I did. This is what happened. This is the result. What did I do wrong? What could I have done better from a product perspective? And they said, look, you were not necessarily set up for success. You didn't have this sort of tool. You didn't have this. And look, localization is really hard. You can't do a localization project in eight weeks. And I just didn't know that. And so I think having that rock to be able to know what's right and wrong from a technical point of view. And then the professional coach was more around communication and managing up. So I had two buckets of things that I needed to improve on. One was skill-based stuff and the other one was interpersonal skills. So I had two separate sources of information for that, which was incredibly helpful. So I think obviously the support network, but also like, how do I improve? What advice did they give or did you pick up later that has changed your approach? Because you talked about managing up being a skill that at the time, as we reflect back, I was like, well, I probably wasn't managing up enough. How did that change after your conversations with your coaches and your mentors? I realized because I freeze, I actually need phrases to be able to use. I need to really prepare this sort of stuff. It should be instantly on Slack. X has happened. I think Y will be a problem. This is what I've done. This is what I need your help with. And literally having that script ready so that you're not just staring at an empty slack, being like, how do I tell them? And then you just close it and you don't. Here's what you say. You need to send it. And sometimes I actually think after having reflected on this a bit, I might need a decision tree of like, is this business critical? Tell them within an hour, all the people that you need to tell, all the actions that you need to take. And I think that sort of thing would be really helpful, especially if you haven't been in senior roles for a really long time or many of them where like a lot is at stake I think having things prepared making sure you have expectations of what good managing up looks like specifically in terms of how quickly you're managing up how much information you're using who are you managing up to 
is it CEO straight away and then work with someone else on it? Depends on the business, but essentially just having things really ready and laid out. I just don't work well on the fly. And how long did it take to build back up trust with your manager? Because you have this moment, you get this tough feedback, you regroup with your mentors. But how long did it take for you to rebuild that trust and feel like the two of you were on the same page with the new skills that you talked about in terms of communicating and managing up? Quite a long time. I think there was actually always a doubt of, is this role right? So I don't think it ever was up to 100% in everyone's best books. I think over time, once you deliver projects, that can obviously work well. There's a couple of things I tried to implement afterwards as well, like Kanban boards. Where is the status of everything? Because we didn't have that. It relied on one person following up with about 10 people to work out where things were. So it's a lot of stress on one person. So de-risking the processes, I tried to do very detailed testing specs, making sure everyone knew what the expectations were. My gut is to be over-prepared and project manage a lot. So I went back to doing that because previously I'd been given feedback, but when I was more hands-off, like shit hit the fan. So I was like, I'm going to go back to my gut, which is over-project manage everything because if Slack's quiet, it's going wrong. So that was really good feedback. And I think just trying to be over-prepared and making sure your tooling is de-risked then set yourself up for success. But I wasn't doing any sort of marketing. I wasn't doing any sort of cross-functional stuff. So just a learning in terms of the type of business and the type of role. So you leaned on a whole bunch of different systems to communicate, to document, to share, and that was really helpful. Yeah. I think it's impossible to do just in your brain. I totally agree. What was the feedback that you said your manager gave? I just wanted to understand what it was. They said, if it's quiet in Slack, it means things aren't good. What does that mean? If you don't hear anything, it's generally bad news. If things are quiet, you should be suspicious or something along those lines. Yeah, it's interesting. At some point, someone smart pulled me aside and said, just because you get feedback doesn't mean you have to agree with it. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you say is like, you got this feedback. The localization thing was probably true. And you got this other feedback in other ways. With the benefit of time, you're reflecting back and you're like, yeah, I just didn't agree with that feedback. And that's totally okay. It took me like 10 or 12 years of working before I learned that I could hear feedback and not choose to accept it. That's really true. I actually received feedback that I was too hands-on. I received projects that I was too hands-off. And then I received projects that I was this. And then I received feedback that I was that. So I received three pairs of contrasting feedback in like eight months. And I was like, this is confusing. So I think with feedback, I struggle with that. For me, the rule is if more than two people have given you the same feedback, that's a good sign. If you're getting the same feedback across multiple jobs, great sign that it's something you should definitely work on. And that's why it's good to have lots of people that you lean on because then you can work out, oh, okay, so my professional coach and my product coach kind of saying a similar thing. Okay, that's definitely something I should work on. But it is really hard to sift out what is it within your control and what is not within your control because that's quite an interesting line. It's interesting. I have gotten conflicting feedback at different companies. I got feedback when I was at one company that was basically like, hey, you're too analytical and data-driven. You should trust your gut and move faster. We care about speed and we trust you. And then a year later, I was at a different company and I got feedback that was like, hey, we want you to make more data-driven decisions here. We think you should be spending more time in the spreadsheets and in the cohort drill-down views and all this stuff. And one of the takeaways for me is that at every company, you kind of need to find the right skill set culture match. Maybe the culture of the company changed and that's why the feedback to you changed. Maybe it didn't change and it was just all over the place feedback, but that was something that I reflected on that I try to encourage folks to do when they're hitting feedback that they're like unsure about or it feels a little bit fuzzy. Does that resonate with you, that concept of 
culture, skill set, feedback, alignment? Definitely. And I think there was a point at which I realized I was getting contrasting feedback. No matter what I tried to put in place, I wasn't going to be successful. And that was a really interesting moment. I used to take feedback extremely seriously, every single piece of feedback, try and actuate, kind of take it to heart. And so when I was getting this contrasting feedback, I was very confused and then realized, okay, this role's probably not a fit for me. I don't think I can succeed in this role. And then professional coach helped me with that. And she said, there's a lot going on here. Let's narrow in on the stuff that's going to help you in any role, communication, managing up. These are two trends that I've seen after a year of speaking to you. It was great to be able to talk to my coach about this. And then she as well helped me prepare for like my career goals for the next one, three, five years. You know, we paused on all the feedback I'd be getting. It was like, let's look at you, Rosie. Let's go bigger and let's give you some stuff to work towards that will help you in any role, no matter what culture, no matter what skill, no matter what role, you will be successful if you can communicate well and manage stakeholders well. Let's do it. Love that. So it's stuff that's evergreen, soft skills, communication skills, prioritization skills, managing up skills. Those are the things that typically cause the most amount of hurdles. It's not our growth knowledge. You can pick that up. You can read blog articles. You can take courses for that. The other skills are harder. How do you work on those skills? With my coach, she gave me some things to think about in terms of managing up and managing expectations. I can give you a specific example. So like I said, I don't often work well on the spot. So when I was in the growth meeting and founders like, try this, 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 this one next week, I'd be like, yeah, sure. And then agree to all these random things and actually not push back properly and not actually think about whether they were the right things to do. I think founders often get new shiny thing syndrome. Sometimes it's a great idea. Sometimes it's distracting. And I found it hard to push back. And so my coach said, here's some phrases that you can use to give yourself time so you can actually calculate whether this is a good thing to do. And then you manage up. So phrases like, interesting, thank you. Let me take that away offline and I will come back to you by tomorrow midday on my thoughts on this. Or that's a great idea. Let's park that for the next brainstorm we have. Or I'm going to have to think about that. It's amazing what that unlocks. Just me not agreeing to things on the spot. She helped me by giving me actionable things to do to help me make more space for myself to actually make the right decisions and actually have a space to be like, this is not possible within that time. Here's what is possible instead. And I think communication really develops with experience. I'd love to know what you have done, if anything, or suggest to people as ways to improve stakeholder management and communication, because soft skills are tricky to improve. It's everything. I was lucky that early in my growth tenure, I worked at Wistia. Chris Savage was the CEO, and I was the before version of you. I would be in a meeting and someone senior the loudest person in the room basically would share an idea and I'd say, I'm on it. I'm going to do it. I'll report back and let you know how it goes. And I would just start executing on it. And one day he was walking in the office and he sat down like the chair next to me. And he was like, look, my job is to get ideas out of my head to the right people. When it's a growth idea or a conversion idea or a revenue driving idea, you're the person I'm going to share that with. Your job is to figure out if it's the right thing to do. I'm the CEO, but I have a million other bad ideas too. So just because it's coming from me doesn't mean that you need to do it. I would rather you say no to my bad idea and prioritize the more impactful work than saying yes, because you think it's what I want you to hear. I share that story because he articulated it beautifully. Most founders don't, but most founders feel the same way. They want you to do the impactful thing. They want to grow their business, but that's the reason why you're there. You're in support of that. And sometimes that means saying no. So I think sharing that perspective a lot of times is helpful to folks. 
And what I think is also helpful is to specify when you're in the ideating phase and when you're in the prioritization phase and when you're in the executing phase, because there's an operating system that you can lean on as well, in addition to the tools that you've shared, which I think are also great, which is, hey, we're already moving forward on this. This is in support of this KPI. We'll be reevaluating other ideas. I'm going to park this on the backlog until then. That date is X. So I think transparency is really helpful. And then also letting folks know. Maybe the last thing that I would share is if you have a natural tendency to say yes and to start going, rather than say yes in the meeting when I'm excited, I'll say, hey, that sounds great. Let me evaluate that and get back to you. And then you can take your time and figure out if it's the right thing to do. So it's just communication, just like what you said. It is quite hard in the moment as well, I find, to make those decisions. So sometimes it's even about having a rule, personal rule for yourself, which is like, don't agree to any new ideas in a meeting. And I like the idea around here's how I work. That worked really well in a couple of businesses I worked on and me being able to say, hey, sometimes I don't work well on the spot. I need time to think. This is how I work best. This is what I need. And I think that's really important when you join to understand that from the key stakeholders, how they like to work so you can respect their boundaries as well. I've even had a woman who was on my team who I put on the spot in a meeting once with the best of intentions, but accidentally she was quiet in the meeting and I said, hey, what do you think about this? I feel like you have really good instincts on this topic that we're discussing, but they froze. They told me later and they said, look, I know what you tried to do, which was to try to include me and to allow me to participate, but I hated the way that you did it. I don't respond well in those situations. If you want me to participate, send an agenda in advance and let me know the things that you want my input on and then I can show up with a perspective. What a gift that you shared that with me because I had no idea and what a mistake on my part as a leader and so again, I think that's what managing up to me looks like. It's letting people know how they can do their best work and how you can support them. And that's hard sometimes to share that. I had exactly the same thing, actually. So at Furley, I used to run the growth meeting. It was me, the CEO, often three engineers and a product designer. And so me and the CEO were very extroverted and the other four people were very introverted. A few weeks went by and we were finding that the meeting was mainly me talking, just understanding people in your team especially certain job types might lean better to certain types, introversion versus extroversion. What I did was I made sure that I send the metrics in advance. I shared the ideas in advance. I shared the UX mock-ups in advance, ads in advance. It's like, hey, respond to this by this time. What's your idea? And I would send an experiment digest. I'd analyze the experiment and be like, Jesse was right with his prediction. This flopped. Why do we all think this flopped? We used to do that in the meeting. And then it was quite difficult. We did that ahead of time and we also did it in Notion and each person had to put reasons they thought it flopped, maybe because of the product, maybe because of the people or maybe because of something that we did. So that was really helpful, making sure you give people deadlines because sometimes if you do things async, no one feeds back. And so do it async ahead of time. It involves you being way more prepared. You'll get so much more out of your team if you just send things in advance if people need it that way. And then you can discuss things that need to be discussed. And it ultimately means you can keep your meetings a bit shorter. It's better all around. It's finding out the environment where folks can do their best work and then enabling that environment as a leader. I love that. Rosie, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your stories and your perspectives and your insights. For folks who are listening that want to get more of you, where should we send them? Where can they connect and continue to learn and engage with you? Definitely LinkedIn. Rosie Hogmaskell. I don't think anyone else has my last name apart from my family. So if you spell it right, you should be able to find me. And I started writing on Medium this year and I love it. Medium and LinkedIn are probably the best. I'm also on Growth Mentor, which is a great platform if you want to be a mentor or be menteed. 
So I definitely check out that platform. We'll put a link to all three in the show notes. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.